Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Do you recognise this? Not to draw attention to your age, but this sound is around 40 years old and almost synonymous with the early culture of video games. Some of you will already be reminiscing about a childhood spent in arcades, completely absorbed in the worlds of Pac-Man, Dig Dug and Space Invaders. I know I am, especially Galaga. Or is it Galaga? For Kenny McAlpine, those worlds would spark a lifelong obsession with chiptune, or more commonly known as 8-bit music, and the fascinating history of how games got their sound. Professor Kenny McAlpine is a Melbourne Enterprise Fellow in Interactive Composition at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, University of Melbourne, and the author of Bits and Pieces, A History of Chiptunes. He joins Steve Grimwade for a bit of a chat. See what I did there? Professor Kenny McAlpine, welcome to Eavesdrop on Experts. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, look, I want you to take me back and our listeners back to the early 1980s, growing up in Scotland. Uh, Perhaps you can tell us how the technology of the time altered your life. Oh, well, it's a a kind of multifaceted tale, actually. Uh, Probably it starts uh, as a kid going on summer holidays to a little seaside town called Millport in the west of Scotland. Um, I suppose, like, most kids who were growing up in the 80s, uh, entertainment options were pretty limited. Um, either we could go for a paddle and chuck stones in the water or, and this was the kicker, we could go to the video game arcade. Uh, and I remember walking in for the first time with a pocket full of 10 pence pieces, 20 cents uh, in in your money, and seeing a Pac-Man machine, a Dig Dug machine, and my own personal favourite was Atari's Paperboy. Now, this was back in the day when there weren't really any rules about video games and video game interfaces. Um, manufacturers hadn't settled on joysticks or buttons as a as the default form of control. So, actually, there were some pretty experimental and quite radical video games out there, and Paperboy was one of them. It was a machine where you played the role of an American Midwest small-town paperboy. You had to ride your bike up this very dysfunctional street, trying to chuck papers into mailboxes while avoiding hearses and kids with remote-controlled cars. The music on it was just absolutely fantastic. It was a a little electronic funk track that builds up. Um, It had sampled speech, which was unheard of for the time but the thing that really really caught my eye was the control interface which was a set of handlebars mounted to the cabinet and I was just hooked I was never any any good at it because it's a, a terrifically difficult game but it was just that combination of the control system the colorful graphics the simplicity of play and that music from that point on there I was hooked time travel again back to the 80s and and let's talk about the Commodore 64 Mm. and potentially why it was such an important breakthrough uh, for gaming. Mm. Well the Commodore 64 really was the first video game home platform to really bring together sophisticated graphics and more importantly from my perspective at any rate a very very sophisticated sound system. Really uh, the Commodore 64 was a hardware synthesizer that just happened to come with a free computer built around it. It was 
The sound chip was designed by a guy called Bob Yans, who later went on to found the synth manufacturer N-Sonic. Now, he was part of a design team at Commodore. Um, Commodore as a company back in the 1980s was was kind of an unusual company. They, they were locked in a commercial battle with their big rival, Atari, and they were headed by a... A bullish, almost despotic uh, CEO called Jack Trammell. Um, and I think f- for Trammell, from what I understand, business was always war. Uh, and he sat at the top of the company and the buck ultimately stopped with him. But he gave then tremendous latitude to his designers to go out and create in a very, very kind of innovative way the technology that would build the next great home computer system as he saw it, something to rival the machines that you could get in the arcades and that would do what Atari did with their Pong home video consoles, which was to bring the arcade gaming experience into the home. But by the mid-1980s, arcade gaming had become very much more technologically sophisticated and what Trammell wanted to do then was capture that, package it, sell it for a reasonable price, but most importantly of all, just destroy the competition. Uh, so he put together a team called uh, the Vic Commandos. Now, the Vic chip had sat at the heart of Commodore's previous computer, the Vic 20, which had never been a massive success, but successful enough to fund a successor. Uh, and I think it was um, just before the CES trade show in 1982, Jack Trammell sat down and said, look, we need to have a machine for this and gave these Vic commandos six months to design everything and they went off designed it from scratch and uh, Bob Yans his only his only design brief was to design the sound chip that would voice then this wonderful platform so he went off and thought about what sort of features should go into it and you can tell from the design that what he was doing was really channeling his love of music and music technology. Because if you look at the spec, uh, there are potentiometer inputs, which would be perfect for control knobs, control surfaces. There's an analogue to digital converter in it, which means that you can hook up an external audio source directly into the Commodore 64. And you can then feed it through the Commodore 64 synthesis system and its onboard filters. So I think it's pretty clear that what Bob Yans wanted to do was design a bit of studio music hardware that he could package up and sell and give people the opportunity then to to create interesting electronic music. Okay, it looks like you know we've already broken the C64 apart and we've already come across the SID chip and you know formerly known as the sound interface design mm-hmm. chip. Okay, so maybe what am I looking at and how does it work? Oh, the SID chip, it's not very much to look at at all. It's just a tiny little piece of silicon with a you know dozen or so pins sticking out the bottom. That's made someone a billionaire. But yeah, besides <laughs> yeah, those things. Absolutely. Um, Inside, uh, it had three voices, um, so three independent channels of sound. It could uh, create um, a few different simple geometric waveforms, so it could do square waves, it could do triangle waves, pulse waves, and it had a noise generator. And this is how it's making music. Mm, yeah, it's absolutely. a musical instrument by making mathematical or sort of sound waves. Yep. Yep, okay. Yeah, yep. Uh, the thing that makes it really, really interesting, though, is not those raw synthetic sounds because every other sound chip 
uh, in a console could do that kind of thing. The thing that really transformed the SID was its synthesis capabilities. So it had filters on board. Now, filters are really just frequency-specific amplifiers. So the devices that let you boost and cut particular frequencies um, and sculpt with sound. So straight away then you could take one of those raw synthetic tones and you could then dynamically apply one of these filters on top of it and create these wonderful wah-wah-like effects over the top. You could create very specific tones. Um, it also had a feature called hard syncing, which is an unusual form of synthesis that was popular for a brief period in the late 1970s you know so a few prog rock bands would have played with these ideas um, but essentially it uses multiple different sonic oscillators which are timed to operate at slightly different rates and one is used as a master control to re-trigger the audio cycles of another and so by doing that you get these really complex waveforms that would be very very difficult to synthesize by any other method I'm going to jump to the music mm. and the music of games. How did coding become composition? Ah, well, it's really down to the fact that, you know, even the SID chip, although it was very, very capable, was very, very constrained. You could only have three sounds playing at the same time. You only had a limited palette of sounds to choose from. And although you could sculpt it and do things with it, that could only take you so far. Now, the thing that always strikes me is, is just how important constraint is as a creative tool. Unless you have constraints, there's very little to push against and there's very little then to use as a marker for innovative thought and creativity. And because of the constraints of the sound chips, because uh, they could only do limited music, the composers, when they tried to step outside of those constraints and push beyond them, had to look for other ways of achieving complexity and that had to happen through code. It was by using inventive coding to, you know, for example, uh, interleave different sound elements between different channels. So you create virtual sound channels by splitting sounds briefly between one channel and another. Uh, so you begin to increase the capabilities of the sound chip by doing things like that. However, that also imparts a very particular sound on the output because you're, you're pushing the sound chip beyond what it can do. You're using code inventively to sort of repackage sound and divvy it up between the available channels that you've got. And so you end up with this kind of unique warbly effect, which has become very, very characteristic and aesthetic almost of that early video game sound. But it's a consequence, a direct consequence of the technological and coding tricks that they had to use in order to get there. Have you proved the ultimate parenting theory? Can I continue to tell my sons that they've got to do music because it's good for their maths or is it the other way around? I have wrestled with this idea for some years. I think they're just different sides of the same coin. I actually started off as, well, I actually started off university as a computer scientist. Um, and apologies to any computer scientists out there, but midway through my first year, I discovered that computer science can be the dullest subject in the world. Oh, burn. Um, <laughs> to be fair, I think I think it was one particular lecturer at my university who sucked all of the joy out of it. Um, and then the second year, what I wanted to be was a cosmologist. So uh, I switched and did uh, astronomy for for a year. Um, 
but I discovered midway through second year that astronomy is the most difficult subject in the world. And so I ended up doing mathematics as my honours uh, degree, almost as a soft option. Maths as a soft option. I'm going to take that as a parenting <laughs> advice to my kids as well. Um, the, the maths that I really loved was um, sort of applicable maths. So I loved discrete maths, graph theory, um, combinatorics, you know, the, the mathematics of combinations, which is really the mathematics that computing is based upon. And actually, once you understand how the numbers work, that's the thing that unlocks that potential for creative code mm-hmm. um, because you can play with numbers in a way, actually, it's not just so much playing with numbers. Actually, there's another element to it, and that's the symbolic representation that numbers can carry with them. So, you know, the idea that numbers are already an abstract quantity. What 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 does two mean? Well, two we understand abstractly relates to a pair of things, but there's nothing inherent about two that means two. However, a waveform is far less abstract, surely. What, I mean, uh, it is, and it is it's a theory, but it's it's a more real thing a than a number, isn't it? Digital one, not really. No. Um, so the process, I'm absolutely with you on an analog waveform. Mm. Uh, you know, because if you think about analog recording, well, how do we capture sound? Well, all sound is really is just moving air, and if you stick a microphone in front of that moving air, then the moving air causes a a microphone diaphragm to move in sympathy, and that then creates a control voltage, which is a direct analog of the moving air. And if you then record that to tape, say, well, how you do that is on the tape, you have a, a layer of ferric oxide rust, essentially, and the record head shifts about those rust particles according to that control voltage so that you get these elements of, of rarefaction and, and compression. You've got a direct analogue of the original sound wave on tape. Now, the same is not true, though, when you digitise sound. When a sound, an analogue sound wave comes in, sure you still have a control voltage at the other end of the the microphone. But what happens next is very, very different. The analogue to digital converter relies on a master clock that ticks, that samples or measures the the sound signal coming in and converts it to a number. So straight away, you're into that weird abstract world of mathematics and all of a sudden you've got a thing, a collection of numbers that represent the original sound wave, but they're not now a direct analogue of it. I'd love to get in a fight with you about <laughs> vinyl versus CDs, but we, oh, won't, yeah. do, we won't do that now. Um, but once once you're into that domain, though, this is where the interesting stuff starts. Sound then becomes no more than just collections of numbers. And so anything that you can do with numbers, you can do to sound. And the interesting thing then is just... How do you play with sound? How do you play with numbers creatively? And that was what mathematics unlocked for me. I feel like it's, it's, it's really strange we've come this far and we haven't, haven't actually mentioned the word chiptune. Mm. Um, and I guess maybe, I mean, given you've written a history of chiptunes, we should actually say what, you should say exactly what a chiptune is. Well, a chiptune is really just any piece of music written either using or in the style of those old sound chips from that first generation of video game consoles and home computers. Um, if I'm absolutely honest, uh, it's a sound that's that's not difficult to recreate using modern technology. Those sound waves were really very, very simple. But there is something unique about that combination of the sound chip, the sound, but then more importantly, the p- programming platform as a context. You know, there's something about 
firing up an ancient piece of hardware and sitting in front of that that hard plastic keyboard, hooking it up to a CRT television and having to go right back to scratch and code the music directly in the language of the machine. And this is still a scene. Absolutely it is. Um, it's a, actually a very, very varied scene. Um, and to be honest, it's although it's niche, it is pretty mainstream now. Um, many people have heard of Chiptune. There are movies like Wreck-It Ralph by Disney which feature Chiptune as a core part of its soundtrack. But the thing that really proved that for me, the thing actually that really motivate me, motivated me to write the book was something that happened uh, back in 2015. I was sitting watching a, a kids' cartoon show with my two kids who at the time I think were about four and seven. Now this show is a a CBBS show broadcast on uh, the BBC's channel, digital channel for for younger children, and it's called Hey Dougie. So typical kids cartoon. It's about a bunch of young animals who are part of a, a, a scout-like organisation, which is run by this avuncular brown dog called Dougie. And every week they get into all sorts of scrapes. And this particular episode, Naughty Monkey, one of the characters, comes down and steals a basket of overripe fruit and runs with it up to the top of a tree. Now, the rest of the squirrels then go and try and get the fruit, and uh, Naughty Monkey starts to chuck the fruit down at them. And this is the beautiful thing. The whole thing then just transforms into a comic takeoff of Donkey Kong. And the music is chiptune. Now, my daughter, though, she was four at the time and much, much more interested in tactile play with an impossibly proportioned blonde doll. But she still jumped up and down, pointed at the screen and went, Daddy, Daddy, listen, it's Mario music. And I thought, if Chiptune works as a cutaway gag in a cartoon aimed at four-year-olds, it's got to be at or pretty near the mainstream. And pretty much you just said, my job here is done. Well, no, my job was just beginning because my job then was trying to tell the story of how we got to that point. Where did it come from and how did, how on earth did we get to the point where Cheptune is working as a cutaway gag? Yeah. Um, look, I want to go back to, to uh, interactive composition uh, and the idea of adaptation and interactivity and, and chiptunes and how gaming composers or composers at the time were constructing soundtracks for these games like Tetris or whatever. Were these songs actually able to be cut up, lifted and, and moulded to my play? Was my play determining how the music I hear? Eventually, yes, but not in the early days. You know, again, it's back to that idea that in the very early game, early days of home video gaming, there weren't any rules, there weren't any codes and conventions, there weren't any workflows. And so people were just making it up as they went along. So most of the early video game music tropes were things that were just lifted directly, either from film and television as another form of screen media, or what happened more commonly was that the kids who were writing music, and invariably they were, most of the video game composers at that time were 15 or 16-year-old kids. What they were doing was they were just coding whatever was spinning on vinyl behind them as they worked. And so there was an awful lot of plagiarism went on back in those early days. Jean-Michel Jarre has probably written more early video game soundtracks than anyone, but he never saw a cent in royalties. Um... I think the game that changed the very first true video game underscore for my money is Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers. Now, I think it's a really, really remarkable soundtrack. 
uh, and it's remarkable in a number of levels. It was written by a guy called Koji Kondo, who was one of the very first full-time video game composers. Nintendo, quite far-sighted, I think, uh, in the very early 80s, hired a batch of different people. Uh, and amongst them then were Shigeru Miyamoto, who's the guy who came up with the concept for Mario, um, Hip Tanaki, who's the guy who ultimately then went on to do a bunch of sound design for Donkey Kong, but was the guy who coded the music for Tetris on the Game Boy. And then... Uh, Koji Kondo, who came in and initially worked together with uh, Miyamoto-san on a couple of other games, uh, Excite Bike and Punch-Out were two of them. And as they worked together, they realised they had this shared love of design and music. Koji Kondo had grown up listening to Czech Korea and Herbie Hancock, but was also then infused with that J-pop sound of the, of the early 80s. And what he did then was... Almost the conceptual opposite of what the composers were doing back in the UK and North America, which was to try and push beyond the limitations of the hardware. What Koji Kondo do was, did was to look at the hardware and think about how he could use music that made a feature of the limitations. And so he started to use these really interesting, what we call shell voicings in jazz. So, uh, you know, I play Hammond jazz, and one of the things about the Hammond organ is the sound is massive. And so if you're part of a jazz trio and you're comping a guitarist or a saxophonist, you can't play big jazz voicings on the organ because it doesn't leave any sound for the other instrumentalists to come in. And so what you do is you take those big, thick, colourful jazz chords and you strip them back to the fundamentals. So in your left hand, you'll play the root, which is the thing that grounds you tonally and tells you where you are. In your right hand, though, you'll voice the chord with the third because that tells you whether the chord is major or minor. And then you'll voice it with the seventh because that's the thing that gives it its kind of characterfulness. And that's exactly then what Koji Kondo did. He used these very, very simplified arrangements to create an openness to the sound and an ambiguity to the sound. But what that also then did was create the space for the music to change and adapt in response to the gameplay. Now, to give you a sense of how difficult that is to achieve, I'll give you a couple of examples from Super Mario Brothers because I, th I think, honestly, the truth of all of life is embedded in that game. Damn, I've never been a fan either. I have to go back. <laughs> it's, it's very, honestly, it's the most metaphysical of all Nintendo's games. Um, but every now and then, uh, Mario collects uh, a fire flower. Okay, so you know you, you go along, you you headbutt the the underside of the blocks. You can get a mushroom to make you big, and then the next time you headbutt a block that spits something out, you get one of these fire flowers. Um, now, when that happens, uh, you get these little musical stings. So these are called event-driven cues. And those little event-driven cues can happen at any point in the game. Another one would be uh, when Mario collects the 100th gold coin and gets an extra life. You get this little over the top. The point is, though, that, ha that can happen at any point. Because where does that 100th coin come? Well, it happens when the player collects it. And so that little sting has to work with the underscore, regardless of when it happens. And so you have to write in such a way that you can accommodate these multiple layers of sound regardless of what the music 
is doing. And so that feature of using these stripped back, slightly ambiguous voicings was as much a consequence of having to make the music work interactively as it was to create an aesthetic. I've heard you quote from those synth pop philosophers of the 80s, (laughs) Devo, freedom of choice is what you've got, freedom from choice is what you want. Perhaps this ties in uh, and speaks to your own views on creativity. Mm. No, absolutely it does. Uh, I, I, like I guess many academics, like many creatives, I'm an awful procrastinator. Um, And if I can find a reason not to, uh, whether that's opening up a session on Pro Tools and trying to decide exactly which software instruments and effects I'm going to do before I actually get down to writing any music. You know, it it is important that you arrange your track properly but I can spend easily an hour or two maybe three just arranging my track properly before I get in and make and even when I do get in and make actually how much time do I really spend crafting and refining those ideas I'll get the ideas down and then I'll start to play around with the production features that Logic or Cubase have to offer and I'll polish it up and it'll sound okay but really what I'm doing is I'm hiding weak ideas behind a a veneer, a gloss of production. Actually, one of the really nice things about Chiptune is because it is so raw and open and simple, you're forced into a situation where you have no option but to create. The sounds are so simple, there's no production magic that happens. It's just you, the blank page or the blank screen, and the ideas. And because you can't hide behind that veneer of production there's nowhere for weak ideas to hide and so it forces you into a position where you create or you die throughout your time looking at the relationship between technology gaming and music what have you been most surprised at oh um so my first computer was a sinclair zx spectrum what a sinclair zx spectrum my god um it was it was the really the machine that launched uh home video gaming in the UK. It was designed to a price point though. Um, and as a result, there were absolutely designed compromises. Now, the reason that this for me is the most surprising thing is that of all of the machines, it had the most limited graphical and sound capabilities that you can imagine. It had a one bit sound device, which means that the speaker was either on or it was off. There was nothing in between. And to make matters worse, it had no sound hardware at all. It just had that tiny little speaker that hung directly off one of the pins of the main CPU. And so if, as a programmer, you tried to code music on it, the CPU ground to a halt because it was controlling the speaker. And so you couldn't have music and gameplay happening at the same time unless you did some of that creative coding that we talked about earlier. And so for me, I think one of the one of the most joyous things, but also one of the most surprising things, is the sheer ingenuity that took the sound of the ZX Spectrum from bleepy, bloopy rasps and dirges of the very first generation of titles to just a couple of years later, you had composers like Tim Fallon writing wonderfully complex multi-channel prog rock tracks as the theme tunes for games like Kronos and Agent X. Um, In doing that, of course... It introduces an element of noise and raspiness, but to my ears then, that grit that gets introduced 
is so characteristic of that period, that point in my life when I was listening to the soundtrack to Manic Minor way more than I was listening to Iron Maiden or Depeche Mode. That sound is just evocative and characteristic, but for me then it also represents that spirit of ingenuity and invention, and I love it. Probably my most important question, your favourite game? Oh, my favourite game? Oh, I think... the truthful and honest answer to that is like my favourite piece of music or my favourite movie. It depends on context and who I'm with and how I want to feel and what I'm drinking. And... I didn't ask you about context or drinking. Oh, I said, what's your favourite game? Right. My favourite film is The Italian Job, the original one. Bam, yeah, Especially good. the bit at the end where the bus is hanging off the edge. And, and for all your listeners, they do get the gold off. I'm sure of it. Um, oh, favourite game. Um, can I go platform by platform? No. Oh, <laughs> I hate this. I'll um, give you mine. Shinobi. Oh, Shinobi. Yes, Shinobi is good. Um, I'm going to choose a wild card then. I am going to go with Tato's Crazy Balloon 1980 arcade cabinet. Very simple but I think it is the game where I can most legitimately claim to be world-leading. I have hit the kill screen. That's like saying, uh, what was your first gig? Oh, it was Lou Reed in a bar <laughs> in New York City in the early 80s. Um, finally, when I next turn on my Xbox One and I start gaming and the sound comes on, what do you want me to think about? I don't want you to think. I think, like a good film soundtrack, the very best game soundtracks, you shouldn't notice. They should get under your skin. They should affect you. All I want you to do is play and be in the moment. Kenny, Professor McAlpine, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Game over. Thank you to Professor Kenny McAlpine, Melbourne Enterprise Fellow in Interactive Composition at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on March 28, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. Drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.